Great to be with you again. Um, it's quite weird that it's twice in a row, so I don't know what you did to deserve that, whether it was good or bad, uh, but it's lovely to be here. My name's Judy and I'm part of the leadership team of Riverside. And uh, we're looking uh, at a series on our front lines. We're looking at what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the day to day, what it means on a grey Monday morning as opposed to a sunny Sunday morning, um, what it means to follow Jesus with our whole hearts, even when trials come our way. And as we hear from James uh, in the, uh, the piece that uh, James read out for us, uh, there are trials that we know will come our way. Jesus says it and James reiterates that we will have trials of many kinds and that those trials can be turned for good in our lives. Even the difficulties that we face at work, the, the difficulties that we face on our street, in our place of congregation, in our places of community, in our friendship groups, in our families, even those can be transformed as we heard uh, prayed earlier on today, that marriages can be turned around. What a beautiful prayer that was. And to give us hope that actually God is in the business of transforming lives. Um, on Friday, uh, I heard uh, from a guy called Nathan Bell Kane, who uh, probably isn't a name that is very familiar to many of you, but uh, he is the governor of the state prison, Louisiana State Petonry uh, Prison and, uh, in Angola. And uh, that is his front line, that is his job. And he was told that uh, he was requested to become the governor of that prison. And it was called the bloodiest prison in the whole of America. And it consisted, they said, of two people, and that was predators and prey. And not only that, but it consisted of so many lifers that people had given up because they thought we will never see the light of day again. So what's the point? Everything is meaningless if you think back to Ecclesiastes. They just thought, what's the point? We might as well find uh, pleasure in corruption because it's all we've got. And so he was offered this job, and I don't know about you, but it wouldn't be a job that, that I would think was going to be easy, would you? I would think that it would be laced with difficulty. And everything in him, he said, really didn't want to do this. He really didn't want to do it, even though he had quite good experience in different ways. And then he spoke to his mother. And uh, I'm not sure that what his mother said is what we would uh, necessarily recommend. But she just said, I really feel you have to take that job. And that actually the souls of those people, that, that you're kind of responsible for turning it around. And she said some more feisty stuff as well, which actually I wasn't sure I agreed with. But you get my drift. When your mum speaks to you like that, whatever age you are, you kind of think, I wonder if this is God speaking uh, through my powerful mother. And uh, so uh, with other advice, he took the job on. He took the job on. And we're going to press pause there. And uh, I'm going to do a kind of duft of EastEnders moment. And then we're going to hear what happened at the end, at the end of the talk. That's just to make sure you carry on listening. Is that all right? Yeah, see what I did there. Um, so um, the first thing that we, um, oh, that doesn't look familiar to me. This is not my PowerPoint. Ah, there he is. Dealing with difficulty, <laughs> there we go. Um, the first thing that we're gonna look at is dealing with discouragement. James never said it was going to be easy. He says that right at the outset. And also in the original text, in the original writings of James, he uses words that maybe help us understand a little bit about how this testing works. He uses a word which isn't on the screen called perasmos, which is a testing directed towards a good end. 
a testing directed towards a good end. It was used about birds that were strengthening their wings in order to really soar and fly. That was a word that was used. It's used when Queen Sheba comes to Perezien, wisdom to Solomon. God was said to Perezien, Abraham, over the sacrifice of Isaac. In other words, it's a trial or test that leads to the ultimate good. It's something that moves us forward, doesn't hold us back. And when we think of our difficulties at work, and I'm sure if we all think of our Mondays right now, you might not want to do that, you might want to do that. But just think of the difficulties that you and I are facing on Monday, tomorrow. Is it just that there doesn't feel like there's going to be enough time to get it done? Is it that there doesn't seem to be enough resource to even make it happen? Has the budget run out before the end of the year? Has, has actually your enthusiasm for your job or for your work or for your life run dry? And James says that actually when we persevere, we are given something and he calls it domikon, which means a sterling coinage, a genuine purity, that actually we are purified and purged by our trials, that we come out of them like silver refined we come out of them stronger and better now you might say well that's been true in some of my trials and not others and I would say that too in my life but I think it's about our heart and it's about as we learnt in the summer from Ecclesiastes it's about do we turn it for good how do we prayerfully say this trial will not defeat me I will see it defeated how in the name of God he will help me rise above it in ways that when we sit here on a Sunday, we can't imagine. Think back to our guy taking over the worst prison in America. Our trials, James says, produce character in us, produce that beautiful refining, that beautiful courage that God loves. And I would dare to say, and this is countercultural, particularly uh, in the American dream culture, Failure is part of that refinement. Failure can often be more positive in our lives than success. Now, just think on that. You might think, well, that balks me. I like success. But actually, John Maxwell says success adds to us, significance adds to others. Jesus did not live a successful life. He was crucified after three years of ministry. But the significance that you and I are gathered today because of him is an eternal one. And actually, when we're living for our own success and, and respect and honour, we can lose sight of the fact that a significant life, whatever we're doing, whether we're washing up, whether we're looking after kids, whether we feel run ragged, that actually we're living a significant life because we're adding to someone else's richness, sometimes at our own cost. And failure can help with that. My most spectacular failure, I think, although you might disagree, you might think of some that have been here, nearly averted one, didn't we, there? Um, but uh, my most spectacular one, some of you will have heard this story, Val will roll her eyes because she's heard this many times, but uh, this is the story of my first year in teaching, and uh, I was being uh, watched, as you are when you're a newly qualified teacher, and uh, I just had this class, it was a year eight class, so that's sort of 12 or 13 years old, uh, I just had them once before and I had not got on very well with one particular boy. John Parker was his name. I remember it. It's etched on my heart and I'm sure my name is etched on his. And um, 
He had written a very pornographic and very rude script in my lesson and then had come to the front offering to read it. So I'd let him read it and then said, right, well, if actually you wanted to shock anyone or make anyone look silly, I think the only person really looking silly now is you, John. Please sit down. And the class had applauded. So I thought I'd won. I thought, oh, look at me rocking out the kind of hard-ass, you know, approach. Can I say that? I think I can. Um, (laughs) Sorry if I can't. (laughs) Forgive me, Harry. Um, But actually, I, I had really shamed him. And he was furious with me. So not one to particularly react in a gentle manner, nor were his family. He brought uh, a gun in to my class on the second day that I taught uh, them. And uh, that was, uh, as some of you know, uh, a really horrific uh, story for me. But another story relates to um, a year seven class that I was uh, also uh, dealing with at the time. And um, they were lovely, uh, really sweet, and I'd been told that I must be very, very careful to be clear with my language with them and that I needed to explain everything very clearly. And uh, we'd had a few good lessons and then um, I was being watched by my tutor. And uh, I uh, said to them, what if we had a million pounds? What if we were given a million pounds to spend? And I put it to you that what if a millionaire said to us, this is an experiment and uh, year seven, you can fly anywhere you want in the world for this money. And uh, you are the guinea pigs in the experiment. In pairs, I want you to get into pairs and actually just talk to each other about what you will take. You don't know where you're going to fly in the world. You don't know what you'll take. You don't know what language they'll uh, speak. You don't know what currency they will use. You just don't know. Now, you're the guinea pigs in the experiment. If you make this work, other children can benefit from it. So think about it. Be ready. And they looked about as excited by it as you do now. They were like, right, this is dreadful. And uh, my tutor's watching me. So I'm going, come on, year seven. You know, we've done stuff like this before. It should be good. So off you go, in your pairs, in your pairs, go. And uh, we waited a little while and people were very disengaged. There was some noise on the floor, there was some silliness, there was some scuttling around on all fours, there was somebody making a high-pitched squeaking noise, and I just said, okay, right, I'm so sorry, we're obviously not mature enough for this, Uh, I'm so sorry to my tutor, let's all gather back here, seven, what a shame that actually I believe so highly of you and there's been some real silliness here today, uh, and that actually we we were playing this lovely game and, and you've spoilt it. And Naomi Johnston, another name I remember that is etched on my heart, put her hand up and she said, but Miss Moore, we don't even know how guinea pigs speak, let alone what they would take away with them on holiday. And uh, my tutor was crying with laughter because he'd seen me dig my way into this. I kept saying, you're the guinea pigs in the experiment, go. And so they thought they were guinea pigs going on holiday and that they had to be guinea pigs. They thought it was the rubbishest lesson. So they were sort of like on the floor. And when you flash back to what they were doing, they were trying really hard to be guinea pigs packing, which I wish it had been videoed so that you could have seen them twitching their noses and squeaking. But the reason I say those two little... um, snippets from my glorious teaching career, which I now no longer do, um, is because both of those incidents, both the one with John bringing in the gun where I'd shamed him, and uh, that ends well, I'm still here, Um, and uh, the guinea pig story as well, I remember having to apologise, having to say, year seven, I got it wrong. 
And wh when we dried our eyes from laughing, particularly my tutor, um, I just said, yes, Evan, I'm so sorry. I should have explained more clearly. Will you forgive me? And uh, my tutor actually said, Judy, that was stunning because he said some of those, uh, some of those children will never have had an adult apologise to them. And actually what we did then is we went on and we used to joke about it. And the same with, with John Parker, who was allowed back in. He was only suspended for three days. That's the sort of school that was uh, before coming back in. It was an air rifle. But um, So I just tell you those two snippets because we get it wrong, but God redeems it. My relationship, both with John Parker and with Year 7, that class, were refined in the fire of my failure. And so we don't have to get it all right, but we do have a God that when we surrender, when we say sorry, when we say, I need your help today, he will transform it. He will turn it around in an amazing way. He will produce what James talks about, that character, that golden courage that he talks about. So dealing with difficulties, discouragement. I wonder who or what is discouraging you today. I wonder if it's words said over us, I wonder if it's the, the fact that actually our job starts to feel meaningless or pointless. John Maxwell says we cannot control what happens to us, but we do have a choice to control what happens in us. That actually, how do we turn this discouragement into something good? Nehemiah uh, was doing really well in his job in the Old Testament. He had the strategy, he had the plan, if you like. He had the blue sky thinking. He had the team in place. He had everything ready to rebuild the city wall. And then what actually happens in chapter four, I was reading it again this morning. I was thinking it's almost like bullying in the workplace that happens here. This is no mean stuff that actually goes on. Sanballat comes and actually mocks him. People say the strength of the workers is giving out. It's not going well. There's so much rubble. They think the job's impossible. Enemies could strike you at any moment. Give up. People kept telling them that they would be in harm's way, that it couldn't be done. They were ridiculed. They were told that actually the strength of the, the walls wouldn't even hold a fox's paw. <laughs> you know, they were mocked, they were discouraged, but they went through with it. Why? Because they had a picture from God and they served a greater God, a greater kingdom than the success of man. It wasn't about their own reputation, it was about the reputation of the living God. And as a team, under God and his wisdom, they went on to fight on through and to win the day. Discouragement says it can't be done. But actually, God says, with my help, many extraordinary things will happen. John Piper says this, the suffering of sickness and suffering of persecution have this in common. They are both intended for the discouragement and destruction of us and our faith and are governed by God for the purification of our faith. Christ's sovereignty accomplishes his love purifying his purpose by overruling Satan's destructive attempts. Satan is always working to destroy faith in you, but Christ magnifies his power in your weakness. Christ magnifies his power in our weakness. James goes on to say that actually we can be given wisdom even when it seems pointless. That in verse five, we can call and ask for wisdom 
We can seek, as Solomon did, to actually be imbibed with the wisdom of heaven, that actually we can see our day and the people that get on our nerves, we can see them with new eyes. And what if your front line feels fruitless? What if it feels totally futile? What if we, we echo the writer of Ecclesiastes that everything is meaningless? Maybe there's someone at work that just does a much better job than you and you feel that sense of giving up because you will never attain what they can attain. There's a great uh, play called Amadeus based on the life of Mozart. It was made into a film uh, by Peter Schaeffer. And there's a character in that called Soleri. And he hears Mozart's music for the first time. He himself is a composer and a musician, but he hears Mozart live, <laughs> all right? So he is daunted, and this is what he says. Displace one note and there would be diminishment. Displace one phrase and the structure would fail. Here was the very voice of God. I was staring through the page of those meaningless, sorry, meticulous ink strokes at an absolute inimitable beauty. That when we look at the work of others, when we perhaps look at the perfect family next door or across the pew in church, when we think they have it all sewn up, I would say to you as a pastor, I hear this time and time again. Everyone says, oh, Riverside is full of such perfect people, such perfect families. They've got it all sussed. They've got it all sewn up. And then next week, the ones that they were pointing at will be in my office saying, I haven't. I'm falling apart. None of us have got this thing sewn up. None of us have. We're all broken people dealing with difficulties, discouragement and disappointment, but we have a mighty powerful God and we have each other. That's something to really celebrate, that we have each other. You're not on your own today and if you feel like you are, please come and talk to one of us. You're not on your own. And Saleri began to realise that he would never, Salieri, is that better James? Um, Salieri <laughs> became to realise that actually he would never be Mozart. He would never, ever be Mozart, but he would be himself. And that actually his significance would be in his calling and in the ways that he could add to lives that Mozart couldn't. And whether we feel we're working alongside Mozart or whether we feel like we're working along someone who really irritates us, James says we can call on him for wisdom and he will bring it. Genesis 3 says thorns and thistles will come out of the same ground that one actually is destructive, one actually is beautiful and can flower. Tim Keller says, you should expect to be regularly frustrated in your work, even though you may be in exactly the right place. Don't think because it's tough, you're not supposed to be there. Think back to our governor in the prison. Don't think because it's tough, we're not supposed to be there. Chances are that's exactly where God wants you. And now a quote from Superman, are you ready? <laughs> I didn't bring the outfit, but <laughs> it's actually from Superman Returns, the film. He says this, you say the world doesn't need a saviour, but every day I hear people crying out for one. You say the world doesn't need a saviour, but every day I hear people crying out for one. Now, I know it's Superman, bear with me, but um, it resonates with me. If you feel fruitless, if you feel your front line is meaningless, if you feel that you're washing dishes and it has no meaning, actually we have a world that is desperate for love, desperate for redemption, desperate for rescue, desperate for a saviour. And all of us can have a front line where we get to play a part in that. And I find that amazing. 
that actually the gifts he's given to all of us differently, all of us uniquely, can be used to bring fruit. Uh, I was telling a story at Mosley a couple of weeks ago about Dave Andrews, who's an evangelist and a community worker over in Australia and uh, in Melbourne. And uh, he does a wonderful work in community, but he was prophesied over him from a young boy that actually he would be a great, mighty man of God. Have you ever heard those prayers? you will be a brilliant, wonderful man of God. And so he was just working with the poor and the homeless with his wife, doing a drop-in centre in the basement of their church. They were coming in, they were being fed. Uh, Sometimes they were drunk, sometimes they were difficult. That's what he was doing. But he was waiting for this moment when he'd be this amazing man of God. And then suddenly, one fine day, the phone rings. And it's actually, we've heard of your work. We've heard that you're a peaceful kind of guy. We want you to come to Palestine to be part of our peace process because of your gifts with people, because of your arbitration gifts. And he thinks this is it. And he covers the phone and he says to his wife, this is it, darling, we're called to Palestine. <laughs> and she says, no, no, we're not. So, like the good husband, he goes back on the phone. He says, I just need to talk this through with my wife. In other words, I'll I'll work on her and we'll get there. Can I call you back? Uh, We'll get back to you, but, you know, it's looking good. It's looking good. So off he goes and he thinks, I'll get get round it somewhere. And he keeps saying to his wife that this is what was prophesied over me, that I'm going to be this amazing man of God and this is going to be it. This is going to be my moment. And she says, no. I really don't think so. I think you're doing what you're doing now with great love, and this is it. This is the amazing man of God, right here, mopping up the broken, taking out the splinters when we think of Harry and Sandy's work. This is it. And it might sometimes feel like it's hard or fruitless, or we don't know why we're doing it, but he has to turn the job down. His wife's wisdom prevails, and some of you are nodding, thinking, yeah, I can imagine that happening. But actually, they get it right. Because that that word that Mother Teresa, that we perhaps often quote, you know, that it's about small things done with great love. So we're all amazing men and women of God, not because we've got it all, because we've got a God who has. And uh, he is going to help us. He does help us. He helps me, I know, day to day to day. I write lists of just all the challenges, and sometimes I write what I can do, and then I thought, and then, God, that's your column. (laughs) I can't do that. I can do these bits, but I know I'm broken. I know I'm not enough. You are enough where I'm not. The politics of people... I don't know if you've ever met anyone difficult. I know we're not difficult, but sometimes people we meet are, all right? So we're perfect. Um, But we can sometimes go into our days like that. I know I can. But actually, we know that um, we are difficult people, and therefore we rub up against people who are also difficult in our lives. And again, James says that actually the way that we are positioned in life, that God has an opposite way, that he who is strong and mighty actually needs to bow down that actually the structure that James sees in the Gospels is very different, that Jesus says the last shall be first, that actually there's another way. And in 1 Corinthians, I think we have some great words, and I'm afraid they're not on the screen, but I think these are really good. 1 Corinthians 1 says this, we work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we turn and bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer with kindness. I read that yesterday and it really challenged me, so I thought it might challenge some of you as well. It's saying minister in the opposite spirit of what you feel. If that person is tricky and ragged and difficult for us, 
Let's kill them with kindness, with generosity, because they are hurting more than you. Many times, most hitting out happens because people are hurting. Most of it is rooted in something that is below the waterline that is making them tricky with you. And maybe, dare to say, making us tricky with them. But actually, that opposite spirit, to minister in an opposite spirit, to bless where we are cursed, to endure it when we're slandered, to answer kindly, we can walk through our trials with an opposite spirit. I don't think, by the way, just to be clear, that we are then asked to be a doormat. I don't think Christianity is about that. The saviour I follow wouldn't have attracted me in the same way if that had been the deal. Just lie down and take it. I think what it means is actually keep on praying that you will have an extravagant love that goes beyond what is expected of you, that actually doesn't just say that they'll lie down. Sometimes that love is challenge, good confrontation with someone else there, good challenge at work with someone else there, being able to say, I got this wrong, or actually this is how it felt when you did this. But actually, it doesn't mean we have to take it. It just means that actually we have an opposite spirit. Pray before that difficult meeting. It was great this week. One of our triplet had a difficult meeting. She was uh, uh, really, really wanting. I don't even know how it went yet. But um, she sent all of us a text. And just actually, we really felt about Esther 4, where in Esther, she gathers people together. She gathers the Jews together. And she says, pray and fast before I go and talk to the king. And actually, when we're dealing with difficult people, when we've got difficult situations that seem too big, Esther was able to go into the court of the king and ask, not because she had it all, but because she had people around her who were praying, who were fasting. The body business I've put there, the fact that actually, if you've got something coming up that is difficult, Text a few people in your small group or your life group. If you're not in a life group, make sure that you get into a group because life is tough and we need one another's prayers. We need one another's support. We need one another's cheering on when it gets tough. As we come to a close, I wanted to just give you the, uh, the second part of our story. Nathan Belkane, who I mentioned, set out person by person, warden by warden, prisoner by prisoner, prey by prey, predator by predator, to transform a huge prison. And he did an audacious thing. He said, what will give them the moral compass to sort this stuff out? What will give them the hope where actually they're in prison for life? And he did, I think, just the most audacious thing. He set up a Bible college in the prison. He set up a Bible seminary that they were thinking, well, who will be attracted to this? And prisoners and wardens came and they've set up this thriving Bible school. And what's really moving, I haven't got the film for you, but in later weeks, I hope we can look at the film. What's really moving is that he then puts up on the screen, you see these persons, so-and-so, serving a life centre for triple murder, now a Bible teacher and a scholar. And their names change, their, their, sur you know, their surnames are the same, but the heading under what defines them totally changes. They no longer see themselves as a lifer. They see themselves, one of them is the missioner of the prison. You know, somebody that, that just in human terms wouldn't fit the bill at all and yet is entrusted. And some of the quotes from what he says were, what was said about him were, he gave me the benefit of the doubt when no one else would have a bar of me. 
He gave me the benefit of the doubt when no one else would have a bar of me. Another prisoner says, well, he's a different type of leader because of the God factor. Wouldn't that be great if that could be said of us on Monday? They're a different kind of teacher because of the God factor. They're a different kind of parent because of the God factor. A different lollipop lady because of the God factor. I think of Yvonne on her crossing, just, you know, that lovely way she has of greeting everyone. And at the end of the story, we have great encouragement, I think, in Nathan's life. Because what he's now done over 30 years of service is a prison that is known for its education, for its peace-loving, for actually the fact that they, build, they make 6,000 wooden toys every Christmas to go to children who have no toys because some of them had homes like that. They make the toys by hand. They make 3,000 wheelchairs a year for people who need a wheelchair. They make bicycles and put them together so that they can go out and equip the, the, the nation. What a story. I cried, and at the end, of course, just to really pull on the heartstrings, somebody sang Amazing Grace, which always ruins me anyway. But it just made me think, our front lines may seem futile, they might feel difficult, they might feel fruitless, but actually, how amazing to turn what could have been one of the toughest jobs in the world into a job that adds significance to the lives of the lost, the hopeless, the rugged, the messy, and actually builds them up into something beautiful. I wonder if you'd stand with me and I'd like to pray for us. I'm just going to read from Thomas Merton, who's one of the Desert Fathers, and who uh, really took time out. When uh, they asked Nathan Burl Cain, how does he do it day after day after day in the prison? He said, I fill up the tank every morning with the word of God and his presence. I fill up the tank every morning. And that's my heart for us. And I believe that's God's heart for us, however difficult it is, even if it's five minutes before the kids wake up. It's tough, but it's worth it. And the Desert Fathers did the same. They took themselves out of the, the rat race, if you like. Society was regarded as a shipwreck from which each single individual man had to swim for his very life. But these were men who believed that to let oneself drift along passively across the tenets and values of what they knew as society was a disaster. They knew they were helpless to do any good for others as long as they floundered about in wreckage. But once they got a foothold on the solid ground of the word of Christ, things were different. They had not only the power, but even the duty to pull the whole world to safety after them. And Lord, we pray that our tanks would be full each day. That we would minister that grace to that difficult person because of you. That we would turn our trials, as James says, to joy of perseverance, to silver instead of tin. That our trials would strengthen our wings, as James puts it. That we would soar, Lord, on wings like eagles, not because of our successes, but because of your redemptive power, even of our mistakes and failures. Fill us afresh, we pray. Make us powerful for the name and fame of you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.